please do sit down. And let me ask you to take up the Bible you were given when you came in and turn to page 762. Page 762. We've been working our way through uh, the Old Testament book of Joel for the last couple of weeks, and we come to a really important passage at the end of Joel chapter 2 this morning. So on page 762, I'm going to pray and then read to us. Our Father, we want to thank and praise you that today is the day of salvation. Thank you that you've poured out your spirit on the world so that we might know you. Thank you for the way that he inspired these ancient words. Thank you for the way that he's interpreted us, uh, them for us in the scriptures. And we pray uh, for his work among us now that you might give us understanding of mind and joy of heart as we hear from you in your word and that we might be changed and encouraged by what we hear. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me read to us then page 762, Joel chapter 2, and starting at verse 28. God says, It shall come to pass afterwards that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit. And I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there shall be those who escape, as the Lord has said. And among the survivors shall be those whom the Lord calls. I hope you'll keep that open in front of you. There's also an outline of the sermon on the back of the notice sheet that you may want to have in front of you. Uh, if you are visiting today or you've been away on holiday, it might help you just to orientate yourself to the book of Joel to say that we've been uh, thinking about two big days so far in the book of Joel. There's been the Day of the Locusts, a historical day of great devastation, as we'll see for God's people at a particular moment in salvation history, the Day of the Locusts, and then the Day of the Lord as well. And the Day of the Locusts was terrible. Uh, it was a day of unprecedented destruction and devastation as the, the God of blessing instead had to curse his own people for their rejection of him. And it was awful. Their crops were destroyed. Their gladness dried up, it says. There wasn't even enough food uh, to offer sacrifices to God in the temple. So truly awful. And Joel has been using that day as a motivation to God's people to wake up to what's going on, to, to try and understand just how bad spiritually things are for them at that time. He wants them to lament, he wants them to consecrate a fast, and to return to the Lord with all of their heart, because as dreadful as the day of the locusts was, there's a still yet more awful day of the Lord that is to come, and he wants them to be ready when that day comes. So he says, blow a trumpet, get everyone together. This is really urgent. 
He says, we need to get the old and the young people together for this. We've got to drag new mums out of hospital. We've got to call couples back from honeymoon. We need to tell everybody to turn to the Lord before it is too late. So two days, the day of the locusts, that points forward to the day of the Lord. And the whole of the, the book of Joel is here to get us ready for that day when it comes. No surprise then that our little passage this morning looks again forward to that great and awesome day of the Lord. But significantly, it also reveals God's agenda for the world today, in between the day of the locusts and before the end. And my hope this morning, therefore, is that we'll understand the, the times in which we live in order that we might live rightly in them, to put it slightly differently, that we'll, we'll grasp God's agenda for the world today so that his agenda might become our agenda individually and as a church. And you'll see on the sheet we've got two main headings and a, a few implications along the way. First main heading then, the Lord will pour out his spirit. Let me read to us again from verses 28 and 29. It shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, says God. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. Your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit. Uh, if those words ring a bell and you're a Bible reader, it might be because they're quoted by the Apostle Peter on the day of Pentecost uh, in the book of Acts when they're fulfilled so gloriously as God pours out his spirit on his people. And you'll see that the, the main idea is like an, an envelope around the verses. Twice the Lord says, I will pour out my spirit. I will pour out my spirit. And pouring out is the language of abundance. Uh, one of the, the simple pleasures of life, I think, is taking a shower. I don't know if you share that view. I kind of love it. But if you've ever had that experience of getting home and you're all hot and sticky and you're desperate for a shower, maybe you're away on holiday somewhere, uh, you turn on the shower and maybe there's a problem with the water pressure or it's just dreadful and barely a trickle of water comes out and you sort of have to spread the water around your body just to make sure that everything gets uh, a little bit wet. I appreciate that's a first world problem, but it is a problem. Isn't it much nicer when you stand under now, I was going to do the accent of what our, our Northern Irish friends call a, how does it go? Pa-sha, like that. I think that's how it goes. Much nicer when you stand under one of them. Here, God is turning on the, the tap, and uh, not just a, a fraction, so that you receive the merest dribble of the, the Holy Spirit. Rather, he's placing us under a waterfall and deluging us with his spirit, give the gift of himself to us in the person of his spirit. It's the same thing that Paul had in mind when he said that God's uh, love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. It's the, the language of unlimited, floodgates open generosity. And that is how God loves to treat his people. And the emphasis here is that it's on a, a gift for all flesh. You'll see that. That doesn't mean it's on all humanity without exception, but upon all of God's people without distinction. 
Um, our society is still marked by ageism. We don't hear a huge amount about it, but you'll find it everywhere. And sexism that we hear rather more about. But here you'll see it doesn't matter whether you're young or old, male or female. One writer refers to this passage as the democratization of the spirit. It, it marks a radically new age in the way that God deals with his people. Because in, in one sense, they knew all about the gift of the Holy Spirit. Um, all through the Old Testament, the, the Spirit had been given to particular people at particular times for particular tasks. So if you scan through your Old Testament, you'll find that craftsmen like Bezalel were, were filled with the Spirit so that they could make the tabernacle just the way that God wanted them to. Elders of Israel had the Spirit poured out on them in Numbers 11 so that they could share Moses' burden of leadership. Judges like Othniel and Gideon and Samson so that they could deliver God's people. Kings like Saul and David so they could rule God's people. Prophets like Ezekiel and Micah so they could speak for God. They all had a, a real experience of the Spirit. But there was a longing that it wouldn't just be for a few people for a time but that somehow all of God's people would be able to share in this experience. Moses said to Joshua once, would that all the Lord's people were prophets, that the Lord would his, put his spirit on them. And until now, just been a longing. So there should be a sense of, of wonder and excitement as Joel looks forward to, announces the day when all of God's people will have all of the Spirit poured abundantly, super abundantly upon them. No one's going to miss out if they trust in the Lord Jesus. No one's going to be overlooked. Spirit being given in, in equal measure and fullness to all of God's children. Not just sporadically or occasionally, but permanently and universally. The very first moment that someone puts their trust in the Lord Jesus... They're going to be filled with all of the Spirit. Uh, Joel himself gives us two implications to this point. The first is that every Christian knows God. Every Christian now knows God personally. Um, I put a verse on the sheet from Numbers 12. God's talking about the, in Numbers 12, about the standard way that he revealed himself to his Old Testament prophets. And he says, Hear my words, if there's a prophet among you, I, the Lord, will make myself known to him in a vision. I will speak with him in a dream. Uh, Moses was a different order of prophet altogether. The Lord spoke with him face to face. But the, the standard way that prophets came to know God and receive his word was through a dream and through a vision. Now, that is, is crucial because when... Joel says that the age of the Spirit is going to be marked by all of God's people uh, uh, seeing visions and dreaming dreams. I don't think he's talking about literal dreams and visions. He's saying something much more wonderful. Rather, that every believer will now be on the same footing as the prophets of old. Every believer will have this personal knowledge, this personal relationship of God. Uh, just in case a few of you are thinking, well, classic uh, Presbyterian, making the Bible fit whatever you wanted it to say before you started. Let me spend a, a couple of moments just trying to show you why uh, this fits with what the rest of the Bible says. First, it, it fits with 
what Jeremiah says about the experience of God's people under the new covenant. This is a, a parallel passage. Jeremiah puts it this way, No longer shall each one of you teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for this is going to be the mark of the age of the Spirit. They shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. But then much more explicitly, if you flick on with me, please, to Acts chapter 2. I think you'll find it on page 910, if I wrote that down correctly. Page 910, where we find Joel's words fulfilled on the day of Pentecost. Just to set the scene, we're in Jerusalem. Uh, Jesus has told his disciples to wait for the power of the Spirit to come upon them. Page 910, we should be on. And then it happens. So if you're in Acts chapter 2 on page 910, you look at verse 4, the disciples, are, the apostles are filled with the Spirit. Um, they start to proclaim what verse 11 calls the mighty works of God in different languages. Verse 6 says the crowds are bewildered. Um, each one of them hears the disciples speak in his own language. It's like the entire kind of Duolingo catalog has been downloaded into their heads. Everyone in the crowd hears the gospel proclaimed, each of them in their own dialect even, uh, the language suggests. Understandably, they're amazed. Others mock and say, we know what's happening. These guys are drunk. And in reply, Peter stands up and says, we're not drunk. It's only nine in the morning. Here's the the real story of what's happening. It's in verse 16. This thing that you're seeing happening now on the day of Pentecost is exactly what Joel prophesied would happen. Joel said all of God's people would receive the gift of the Spirit. And that is what is happening today. But here's our point for now. Did you notice that nowhere in Acts 2 is there any mention of anyone dreaming a dream or seeing a vision? What has happened is that the disciples have been transformed. A few hours ago, they were a timid bunch who have grasped next to nothing about God and his purposes. And now they've been turned into a group of pioneering evangelists who are able to declare the mighty works of God. And it's because God has met with them. And they now know God personally and directly, just as God said they, as Joel said they would. It's this new and glorious age of the Spirit in which all of God's people know God directly through the Spirit. I'm going to apply it in just a second, but let's think on the, the second implication for now. It's that every Christian makes God known. It was the other bit of the pattern in Numbers 12. First, the prophet receives a message from God, and then they declare it to others. Same thing happens in Joel 2. First, the prophet is going to receive a message from God when the Spirit's poured out on them, and then they're going to speak for God. And that's the pattern here in Acts 2 as well. In fact, Peter makes a slight tweak to Joel's words. A very um, eagle-eyed among you may have spotted that. Joel said it once. Peter says it twice. This is what will happen when the Spirit comes on my people. God says, they shall prophesy. So you'll see the link really clearly, I think. It's not the only ministry of the Spirit in Acts, but it is his major work. He empowers God's people to make God known. So here in Acts 2, the Spirit comes, what happens? Answer, Peter preaches a sermon about Jesus. He's not 
foretelling the future. He is foretelling the mighty works of God. In fact, 70% of the narrative of the day of Pentecost is taken up with the account of what Peter preached, or as Joel would say, what Peter prophesied as he declared the lordship of Christ to people from every nation and called on them to respond in repentance and faith. Just one more cross-reference to underline the point before we apply this. Glance over one more page to Acts 4, verse 31 with me, please. Page 912. This time the believers are being persecuted for the first time, so they pray. And in response, Acts 4, verse 31, you'll see that God fills them with his spirit. And no one has a dream, but they continue to speak the word of God with boldness. It's not just the apostles, that's all of God's people. Because the gift of the spirit empowers every believer to know God and to make him known. If you want to ask me a bit more about the detail of that or argue with me about it afterwards, I'd be delighted to, to do that. But as I've been reflecting on it, I've been confronted by some fairly uncomfortable questions. Let me um, share them with you. And again, I think it might be even more profitable for us to talk about this afterwards instead. If we stand as we do in this incredibly blessed moment of salvation history, if we are alive in a day when God has chosen to pour out his spirit on each and every one of his children so that we can know God and so that we can make him known. If that is the big thing that God is doing in the world right now, then to what extent is that my priority as well? How much of a priority do I make it amongst all the other things that I've got to deal with in life to know God to grow in my relationship with him to spend time with him to talk with him to relate to him as to a father as the spirit enables me to do how much of a priority is that and how much of a priority is it for me to make him known just to press on that second question for a, a moment, a story is told about the um, American evangelist D.L. Moody. He was on a preaching tour of the UK. He was visited in his hotel room by um, some Church of England vicars who couldn't understand why his ministry seemed to be so uh, effective. And so they said to him, Mr. Moody, you've come to London. You've got virtually no education. Uh, you speak horrible English. American. Uh, your, your sermons are very simple, and yet thousands are converted, and we want to know, how do you do it? And apparently, uh, his biography says, uh, Moody took his visitors over to the window, and they, he asked them to tell him what they could see as they looked out of the window. And one vicar looked out and said, well, I see a park, and I see some children playing. Another said, well, I see the same thing, except there's also an old couple walking along hand in hand over there. And the third asked Mr. Moody, what do you see? And his biographer says that as Moody stood there staring out of the window, tears began to roll down his cheeks and onto his gray beard. And he said, when I look out of the window, I see countless thousands of souls that will one day spend eternity in hell if they do not find the Savior. 
and the reflection for me was that sometimes you can be so consumed by the urgent business of life and work and family and even church that it's possible to forget what is truly important. Because if we're in the age of the Spirit, then the very next thing on God's agenda, the next thing in his diary, is the day of the Lord itself. And we don't know when it will come, but we know that it's coming. And that's the subject of our second point this morning. The Lord will pour out his Spirit. Praise God he's done that. Second, the Lord will show wonders. The Lord will show wonders. So um, back to Joel chapter 2 with me, please. We're on page, what was it, 762, I think. Page 762. And I'm going to read to us from verse 30. God says, I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, there shall be those who escape, as the Lord has said, and among the survivors shall be those whom the Lord calls. So God speaks of wonders that he will show. Uh, They're not the, the seven wonders of the ancient world, like the hanging gardens of Babylon or the pyramids. They're not the seven wonders of the natural world like the great barrier reef and the northern lights. These wonders feel more like the the images taken of Dresden after that relentless bombing in the Second World War. They call to mind pictures of Hiroshima. They are fearful wonders of devastation. Earlier prophets like Isaiah spoke of the, the stars of heaven no longer giving their light the sun turning dark, the moon not shedding its light on the day of the Lord. Uh, Joel himself used the same language you'll see back in chapter uh, 2 and verse 10. He repeats it here to highlight the, the global significance of the day whose horrors will exceed even that of the locust. And from Joel's perspective, it looked as though the day of the Lord would be a single 24-hour event. But then when we get to the New Testament, we see that it it somehow stretched out. That it it began as Jesus hung on the cross, that's why it went dark for three hours, but it, it won't be completed until the day of Christ's return. So I find it helpful, I don't know if this will help you, to think of a timeline of the world. And you've got creation back at the start down there. Somewhere along the way is is Joel. And he's looking forward to the day of the Lord when God will do everything that he's promised. And Joel doesn't have all of the detail, but we might say that he was looking forward to what we know as the day when Jesus would die for the sins of his people. And when he would rise again. And when he would ascend to heaven. And when he would send the Spirit. And when he would return as judge. And Joel thought all of that is happening on this same day of the Lord. But what God in fact did was to pick up the timeline and find that tiny fissure between the gift of the Spirit and the day of judgment and then stretch it out. It's like it's made of elastic. Stretched it so far that the gap between those two events now stands at, what, 2,000 years and counting. 
but really it's all just part of the same day of the Lord. And for the Apostle Peter, the big deal of Pentecost is that it proves that the great and awesome day of the Lord has begun. The outpouring of the Spirit proves that the very next thing God will do will be the final return of Christ. It's just a question of when he's coming. Um, I've illustrated it before by referring to the digital clock that they put up in the, the top corner of the of um, certainly of rugby matches on TV. I don't know if it happens in other sports. Uh, and you may have noticed if you ever watched the Six Nations, when 80 minutes has been played, the clock turns red. And all that's left is for the ball to go dead and the referee to blow the final whistle. And it is a striking thought to me that in terms of the history of our world, we're being told that the clock in the top corner has turned red that we are playing overtime and that all that has to happen is for Christ to return and the final trumpet to sound. And it could happen at any moment. That's why when Peter quotes Joel at Pentecost, he refers to these days in which we're living as the last days. It's because these days are days of borrowed time. Let me close with an implication and a question. The implication, call on the name of the Lord. Verse 32 of Joel reads, It shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And doesn't that seem like the most obvious thing in the world to do? Uh, I was chatting to a guy recently who had had a heart attack. And uh, he said that for him it had been a a bit of a wake-up call. He was just in his uh, late 50s, I think. He told him, he told me that um, the lesson he'd learned from it was that he needed to de-stress his life. Uh, and I'm sure that is right. But it should also wake him up to the fact that none of us know when our time is coming. There is no greater priority in life than knowing that we are ready to meet our maker. And I was grateful for the chance to say that to him. I was even more grateful that he saw the sense of it. And it it does make sense, doesn't it? That if the only thing left is for us to die, for the Lord Jesus to return, for us to stand before him, if we're going to have to give an account for our life, if we're going to have to explain all of our sins of thought, word, and deed, that there is no greater priority than knowing that we have been forgiven our sins, that we've called on the name of the Lord, and that we're ready to meet our God. So isn't it wonderful to you that the Lord your God is merciful and gracious, and that through his Son, the Lord Jesus, he's provided a way for us to be ready. And so the big appeal of Joel up there in chapter 2, verse 12, even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart. Again, verse 31, call on his name and you shall be saved. There's a point that Peter understood well at, at Pentecost. He explained to everybody that the Lord upon whom we have to call is Jesus, risen from the dead. He said, well, what should we do then? He said, repent and be baptized. Every one of you 
in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And I want to encourage you to do that this morning if you've never done it before. It's a great word, everyone. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. I love it because everybody means everybody. That is a, a word of hope for you personally this morning. Call on the name of Jesus. Put your trust in his death on the cross for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will be saved. There is not a doubt about it because God has promised it. And he cannot lie. That's the implication. Call on the name of the Lord. The question is how will they hear? It's the question that the Apostle Paul asks when he quotes verse 32 in Romans 10. I've put the reference on the sheet. Famous verses. He says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But how will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they've not heard? And how will they hear without someone preaching? Uh, I was reading a book with a very confident title. It's called A Heartbreaking Work of Staggering Genius. Uh, you've got to be pretty sure of yourself if that's the title that you give to your book. But it's about two young brothers. Um, sad story. They both they just lost their parents. And they know that life is going to have to return to normal at some point. But for now, they're in denial. And it's the summer. And they're young, uh, late teens. And so they decide that the way to cope is to forget their responsibilities and just to play their music really loud and to try to be completely carefree. And you know, there's, there's one sense in which you can do that in the summer when you're young. But you contrast that with that international rugby team, the clock's in red at the end of the match. They're a point behind, but they've got the ball. Uh, and they're not carefree. They're not just living their best life. They're focused, they're driven. They're risking everything, they're stopping at nothing to get the score that they need to win the match. And friends, these are the last days. The day of judgment is coming. The clock is red. God could blow the final whistle at any moment. And there are people from every nation who have yet to call on the name of the Lord. But God has a great plan, which is that he pours out his spirit on us, his people, young and old, male and female, no one's left out. You trust in the Lord, you've had the Spirit poured out on you for this purpose, so that we can know him, so that we can share in the privilege of making him known. It's not everything that God has for us while we wait for the whistle to blow. There are other things that the Bible talks about, but it's a part of it, and it's what God is putting in front of us this morning to think about. So if you haven't, call on his name yourself and then join with us as a church, I hope, in proclaiming his name far and wide. Let's pray together. Our Father, we want to thank you for the great gift of your spirit. We know that we live in privileged days of salvation history in which we can know you we don't need a mediator or a prophet to tell us about you because we know you personally through the Lord Jesus and by your spirit. 
And we don't just need to watch other people serving you, but we ourselves can play a part in making you known. And we want to thank you for that gift. We want to pray for ourselves that we would make it a genuine priority to know you and to grow in relationship with you. And we want to pray that you'd help us to make it a genuine priority to make you known. Thanks that we're not on our own as we do that, but that we have all the power of God inside us to help us. And so we praise you in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Well, the children are going to come back in. I think they've just 